Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For this series, I'm meeting six different women, artists, musicians, writers, all of whom are taking me to a place that they hold special and which inspires their creativity. The garden we're standing in today is the one horticultural designer Sarah Price inherited from her grandmother. It's a beautiful Victorian walled garden in Monmouthshire and Sarah is going to tell us about its past and present. I want to find out how it shapes her creative vision and the work she's done transforming London's Olympic Park and creating award-winning gardens at Chelsea. We're in Abergavenny in South Wales and we're standing in the heat by some giant tomato plants in my greenhouse. It's a September day but it feels re- it feels really really warm in here. You can hear insects and horses <laughs> because the greenhouse is on the edge of our garden. I don't know if you can hear the noise of the kibbe stream coming down from the Sugarloaf Mountain. So there's always this kind of lovely backdrop. It feels very special. So you, before you became a gardener, you were an artist. What kind of thing were you doing? So I studied fine art and it was an incredibly exciting time to be a student in Nottingham and painting was very much out and most of the time I, I worked in photography and installations. But I did miss, when I graduated, I did miss painting and drawing and being in touch with the real world. And I was also really drawn to coming here and just gardening here and I felt so energised and at peace and I was just devouring books on gardening rather than on art. I love art but I realised I really loved plants and I'd always taken that love for granted. How much did you know then about gardening when you when you took on this project? Well my father was a fantastic vegetable grower and I'm one of five children and it was a fantastic opportunity for me to go and garden alongside him on his allotment when I was growing up. It was a way of me getting special attention, attention that I wouldn't otherwise have. And he had a really wild and very beautiful but productive garden, well, allotment on the edge of the green belt. And so it also felt like a kind of slightly different world, which this garden's always felt to me. What state was it in when you took it on then? So this was all grass because my grandmother had died and it looks, (laughs) at the moment it looks quite wild and it is quite wild. The kind of intense colours of summer have really disappeared. It was incredibly dry here and although we're in Wales we didn't have rainfall and it's very free draining soil. So the garden really looks bleached out at the moment. It's interesting actually at all the different heights of the planting. So we've got really tall wild carrot, which looked stunning earlier in the year. So it's got this kind of creamy white umbel and it's towering above us. So it's probably about six foot. And we had parsnips, which are acid green in, in flower and those skeletons are still standing. We've got leeks, they're amazing round flower heads, which are like round seed heads now, lots of knapweed self-sown fennel and this euphorbia which has been flowering for months and months and months and um, lower down the skeleton of this verbena bampton which a month ago was covered in these tiny lilac star 
starry flowers so it looked like it was sprinkled with glitter and it's it's wild there's lots of different heights there's lots of different texture and because of that the wildlife is really drawn to it i mean i counted 19 different types of butterfly here in one day in the summer but i'm going to rip all this out this year why is that this is where i experiment and i'm really wanting to push the boundaries of what you can do with plants i'm really into intermingling plants and planting them as a community so not in the traditional sense where you plant one plant next to another but as a kind of a more of a sociable yes community of plants that that compete with each other for resources for water for sun and create a more stable planting so how will that change the shape of it here because you've talked about the the height of the sort of it's long grass and long things the kind of stems that I imagine look amazing in frost that yes. kind of look how how different will that shape look when you've replanted so there's going to be more low hummocks or mediterranean plants there'll be lots of low ground hugging plants like thymes tucurums bowl-shaped forms of euphorbias but then I always I'm, I think my planting is quite known for being quite ethereal so there'll be lots of tall emergent plants that come up and that, like grasses that create a kind of haze and then at the back I'll be planting taller Mediterranean shrubs but different parts of the garden here I have different conditions and I'm really lucky that I can experiment so here this is going to be my sort of drought tolerant plants over here plants which can take more shade. It is quite dramatic actually to see the difference in light between this central triangle and just a few steps to the right, that very broad border. That's so much darker isn't it? And and they've still got some of their summer colour haven't they, some of those? Yes, that's been a healing in border really. Extras. I also want to create more paths through so people can walk through and sit amongst the plants and feel really like they are having an intimate conversation with what they see in front of them just to look at the wildlife so that will I guess change the scent and sound of the garden as well won't it because at the minute it smells very British to me yes although quite honeyish I had some children running through the oregano and thyme over there and yesterday it, it smelled like the Mediterranean so it just depends which which direction you're yes, standing I guess yes. yeah so some of these plants I'll keep this salvia. Oh, it's beautiful. Salvia calendulabra. So I'll keep unusual salvias like that. Somebody who doesn't know what a salvia smells like, can you explain it for us? It's got quite a musty, musty smell. Some people really like it and other people don't because of it. So because they're fools, it's amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Are we going to go this way or that way? Oh, whichever. Yeah, we can. Okay. Um, Were you always creative when you were younger? Yes, so from a very early age, I was always drawing and winning competitions, just silly little competitions, but it really boosted my confidence. And I was always always making up games around plants, and I remember all the plants in my playground, which I thought was normal, but actually, looking back, it isn't. And all the, all the trees, like we had some silver aspen by the playground, which really I found mesmerising the way they quivered in the light so how do you think your creativity has changed over the years particularly since you moved here there's definitely strong thread I think all my confidence has come from being creative 
and I was dyslexic at school so I think it was also that contrast of finding spelling very difficult but being able to draw very well it was just a world I could retreat into and I really really loved it in many ways I think I always build on the pattern of working that I started from when I was quite young so maybe I loved collaging maybe when I was 14 and then at art school I'd still be collaging with bits of found materials and all my photographs and even now I'm a garden designer sometimes because I'm self-taught I keep designing in the same way that I've always been making art initially often I'll start with a few different textures or I'll play with making marks to kind of free myself up from the constraints of of a plan and I'm still arranging colour and shape and form which are the fundamentals of garden design and people often ask me why did you move from fine art into into garden design and for me that it's really obvious because the same you're just transferring your skills so if I went to say a still life class after a day of designing in the office I'd be really tired because it's the same part of my brain that I'm using. So what is it like here in the winter? This part of the garden is always very sheltered, so if it's a sunny day, it will be quite a few degrees brighter. In the winter, we're surrounded by the Black Mountains, so you can see the top of the Derry over there, and the foothills of the Sugarloaf over there, and the Blorange at the right opposite. So you always feel like you're, in some sense, sheltered, but the weather does come at you. Should we carry on around the corner? It's an extraordinary place to spend even a little time. Though it's an old garden, one that Sarah has known her entire life, still she finds new ways to work with it, bringing her artistic background to its borders and its beds, and reimagining what the garden's various spaces might become. This garden, it teaches me so much. Like we're standing by the entrance to a tunnel and the ground is kind of falling away at our feet. Shall we go in? Yeah. What is the tunnel? So this tunnel was built when they redirected the road and for years it was quite silted up. And now and, um, a friend dug away. <laughs> and discovered these cobbles at the bottom, so about a foot of soil has come out, but we, we are having to stoop. It's <laughs> difficult for a tall person, but... I imagine your children love it, though. Yes, they can walk out under without stooping. Oh, wow. When you come through the tunnel, the sound of the river always hits you. So... We're standing in what we've always called the secret garden because of its access through the tunnel. And um, when I was a child, this was always overgrown. There were a few allotmenters here and there were always beehives. But it's gone through different phases of being you know, completely covered in brambles. And now we have lots of asters in flower and apples on the trees but it feels very wild still. There's lots of meadow grasses and seed heads. And I'm very conscious that to a lot of people, my garden must look really messy. <laughs> but in a sense, when you're designing other people's gardens all the time and you've got a young family, your garden almost comes last. Does this 
going into your garden and in fact that sort of wildness does that feed your work with other people's gardens this garden is continually feeding my ideas so it's very unedited but for instance we're standing by an oak tree here and three years ago (laughs) on my son's birthday the bees over there swarmed and they clustered around the trunk you can see the center of the trunk is is bare and the tree is only about seven years old it's you forget how quickly seedlings can grow because it stands about four meters tall but where the bees swarmed we had to cut off the branches and so there's this kind of gap in the center of the tree and that kind of prompted me to start toporizing the form so it's due another clip but from different angles so just little things like that you take that idea away and transfer it you still got bees still so our neighbor and friend um who my son calls sam the bees yes keeps the bees over under that ash tree it's lovely we've got a beautiful ash tree behind you there you can see how silvery the leaves look against the blue sky and it's just one of many ash trees that follows this stream all the way up up the mountain so when you climb up the dairy you can see the kind of lovely kind of graceful graceful shapes of the ash how much of the garden do you carry into your home i noticed some little buds that your daughter collected <laughs> in an egg cup i really like the way my daughter Rosa, she's three, will just pick bits of grass, pick leaves, pick flowers, often with really short stalks, and put them together in little arrangements. It gives me fresh ideas, like how she's looking at things and combinations I wouldn't normally put together. But it is really important for me to bring the garden into my house because it's an old Victorian house and it needs, it needs nature in there. <laughs> And I can't fling open the doors and immediately step out, so you have to kind of bring bring the garden in. When you dig down into the soil here, you always get these rounded river stones, so I'm increasingly making more and more areas of cobble and also digging away to see if there's any other areas of which have been cobbled in the garden because soils so quickly just soil levels can build up. You mentioned how you're known for having an ethereal approach to gardens. When did that show itself? I discovered how I work really through doing show gardens and by doing show gardens it's really allowed me to experiment. So yeah I've always used Chelsea as a bit of a catwalk that's how I've, I've discovered my style and how I garden. We've got these mature cyclamen all over the garden and all under these ancient oak trees and their corms are the size of, of dinner plates. If you kind of take some of the leaf mulch away you can really see they're ancient, ancient. They're like almost like we very young crocus or something aren't they? They've got different shades of purpley pink, lilac and because this garden we're looking at this border now and it's on a slope and it's edged with stone and it's covered in kind of golden oak leaves, different shades and there's a few ferns, they really look at home here. It's about planting a mass often 
rather than planting many different things it's about creating a kind of visual unity how old is this oak it's oak so at least 120 years old it's huge isn't it i i absolutely adore this oak and it's leaning over the kibby stream it's been beautifully designed in the victorian times but they're, they're these dry stone walls and steps Do, would you like to go down um in different layers I keep it quite wild, the steps at the moment. Just got my children playing down here. I just think they really knew what they were doing when they were designing this garden. They've got this lovely stone, raised stone platform and steps that lead you down into this shallow pool. When I was a child, I used to walk under that archway and there's, there's different tunnels in the garden that you can follow the, the kibbe stream rushing through. It, it feels really enchanting. It feels like I love gardens that have different episodes. They feel like they're flowing and kind of overlapping sequences, but each part of the garden is different. It's nice to see the underside of the ferns as well here, isn't it, with the amber? Yeah. So we've just started cutting back this area to bring more light back. But this is a meadow and it's usually really beautiful. It's full of dainty dainty yellow it's called the wild tulip tulip sylvestris tulip of the woods but on our right hand side is this osmanthus that my grandmother would have planted and it's grown into a kind of six meter multi-stem tree it has this lovely arching habit i recently a few months ago created this area just spreading gravel underneath using some rocks that I found when we were digging deep in the soil as, as these rocks as little seats. It's really really peaceful. How important is it to you to continue the garden for your grandparents? See this, this is a tree we're standing under that your grandmother planted but all, equally how, how easy is it to make changes or cut something down that they may have planted? Yeah. When I first moved here I was really um, inhibited by the fact that I was looking after my grandmother's garden. She had a really fantastic eye. I never gardened alongside her. And, and then from moving from a flat in London to this large garden, which is almost two acres, was really daunting. But almost um, it took a kind of drastic action to almost free me up. So the border we've just walked along and some of the areas in the kitchen garden I sowed with some Olympic meadow seeds, so some spare seed that we had from creating the meadows at the Olympic Park. And that summer it was absolutely stunning, These, this annual display of orange, yellow, red, white, all the colours you can imagine. And that action triggered a succession of other actions and it's really freed me up because she, gardens aren't static, they're evolving pictures there's like there's so many performances in in a week it seems in a garden so I nurture these beautiful old shrubs that she's planted and prune them but then I'm also having to be quite drastic with the garden because it's changed a lot it's half the size it used to be it's got to feel alive and it's got to feel full of atmosphere still but gardening especially in an old mature garden it does take time but then having said that it's surprising how quickly things grow and it's really important just to keep looking at your garden with fresh eyes
when you're gardening here in a garden that was largely uh, shaped by your grandmother how conscious are you of what the future holds for for this land and how um, how it will carry on your vision and how it might have new visions given to it I think because my children are so small still I'm very much thinking in the medium or short term in the future I'm definitely open it up to visitors when I've got it to how I want it to be because I've got so many ideas in my head it's just a matter of having a little bit more time to do that but maybe that will take three or four years I also see it as a place for school children to come and just to sit under the the branches of this asmanthus and 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 to read stories or just observe nature so I want it to be a very dynamic place it's got a lovely atmosphere this garden which I think comes from its original design back in the Victorian era and it's a very poignant place because my late father loved it and my grandparents loved it but I think we're just so transient when you look at the oak trees they tower above us they're so beautiful they're really particularly if we go around the corner here they're twisted and I'm just going to try and live in in the present and experiment and I know that what I'm doing here will feed other projects I'm just learning constantly by being in this garden and observing nature and light and playing with plants. You've been listening to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. The producer is Jeff Bird and the series was conceived by Emily Mears. You can subscribe to Toast Podcast on our website or with your preferred podcast provider to hear more episodes from this series.